Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and this week's guests, Aisha Gray-Henry, Latanya Dewberry, and Melody Fuller, as we delve into the topic of foster care, adoption, and kinship care in the African-American community. Let's get back into the conversation. Now, you already kind of touched on this in regard to how does race and culture um, play into the process of adoption, but how did it play into your decision about adopting? Well, I grew up old school African American. <laughs> well, you don't want no social workers running through your house. We talking about what is it, Clarence? Uh-huh. What was the name of that movie? <laughs> Clarence, 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 what was her name? But anyhow, um, I grew up with like when we first were starting to talk about it. Our family was like, "Oh my God, you gonna let them social workers be all in your house? They gonna be all in your business? Y'all gonna have to tell them everything, <laughs> you know?" So, um, I think that the stigma associated mm-hmm. with uh, the social work field and the foster care and um, well, they call the child well child protective services here. There was ACS up in New York, but the the stigma that's associated with it, like they just coming to take your kids and different things like that. Um, really was a deterrent for a long time. You did not, for one, this is what I've noticed when I talk to people about becoming foster parents or adoptive parents. That's one of the things. They don't want people walking through their house anytime, being able to have access to their home, checking on them and and, and making notation of what they're observing because you you do become like a fishbowl, you know? Uh, the second thing is, um, and I wrote it down, that Uh, A lot of people in the African-American community already feel like foster parents. A lot of us take in the children in our neighborhood to keep them from getting put into the system, keep them with their familiarity, even though their parents may need some support. That's what I saw growing up in my life um, time in New York, because I grew up during the era where crack crack cocaine was a huge um, impact in the black community. And a lot of children were being removed from their families. And the system got so inundated that children just stopped being removed. And that I seen that happen down here as well. A lot of social workers confided in me that we just can't go get everybody. We don't have space. We don't, you know, parents are, I mean, uh, social workers was keeping the kids at the office for days on end, just with no room. So, for the African-American community, they were just keeping the children like you go stay with auntie such and such down on the third floor or whatever for a couple of days. So- I think that's so important, Natanya. Can I just tell you like sure. that, 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 that community aspect of taking in our community members when they yes. need help. That is such a, we call it old school, but that was so a part of how our communities Absolutely. often operated. Um, and we've kind of moved into a space now where, you know, that doesn't happen as often. And I think the lack of trust, the the issue of lack of trust that we feel in our community is the hugest barrier sometimes to our healing because sometimes we get in our own way. Sometimes we get in the way of our kids getting the help they need. Sometimes we get in the way of us getting the help we need. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it gets a way of us figuring out how to navigate to get access to the help we need. So I just think that's an important And that's a a great segue to my last point, because the third one was a lack of education um, and proper training for those communities. So as an African-American female, I was not taught trauma-informed practices until I got into foster care. 
So one of the strategies that CPS has been using in Wake County for, for, for me and my wife that we've experienced is they've implemented, um, and I've actually co-facilitated after going through this program and been on several panels about it, was um, the trauma-informed parenting course. And as foster parents, they were giving this course away for free to parents that were already foster or adoptive parents to teach you how to see and be trauma-informed in your parenting approaches. And um, it was it was invaluable. I mean, every time I think about that course, I'm always like, every parent should go to this because it's not yes. just when a child goes through a traumatic experience. I mean, our children go through traumatic experiences just going to school every day sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't know what they're experiencing in totality. And if we had this training under our belt, it would give us so much um, so many tools that we can use to prevent the the children from going into um, protective care, protective services, you know, um, because we will have better tools. So one is the information sharing and the African-American community has been very guarded about their children because of what the experience has been mm -hmm. in the past with children that's moved through the foster care system, not being taken care of, being assimilated to other cultures. Um, losing their identity, you know, all these things. So the the stigma that's associated with that on top of not being educated, on top of feeling like I'm already doing that for my community has really made it difficult for people to navigate this process with understanding um, mm -hmm. the full gamut of the program. So <clears throat> you are just dropping gems on top of gems on top of gems. Um, this conversation is going to get even more and more intriguing as we go and more and more informative as we go. Um, but one of the things that I want to make sure that we ask, right, is what unique challenges did you and your wife face as you were pursuing adoption as African-American women? Yeah, so I have to be honest, Naisha. <laughs> okay. Be honest. I'm a fierce, fierce, fierce advocate. I'm a fierce advocate, especially for children, women, and people living with disabilities. Fierce. I will fight to my last breath for those communities. And I think coming into this field of uh, child protective service and understanding the dynamics. I mean, I've been in case management and HIV care management, uh, HIV case management for 20 plus years before yes, doing this. So I understood a lot of the impact that families have. And so did my wife, because she was in the field with me. <laughs> and um, we, I think most of what we faced as far as challenges was internal. It was mm. more like, can a gay family really adopt? Can a, fa a gay family really, uh, or LGBT family really uh, take care of children that are not biologically theirs? Um, the fear of being rejected for that. It was a lot of in internal stuff, but the team at the Wake County office never brought that up. They were more tied into our parental styles. They were more tied into the, our advocacy skills and our ability to navigate systems, whether it was the school system or the healthcare system. As, um, if we were doing anything political, because we were always visible in those spaces. So I guess 
from our speech and different things, even when slight things would happen during our onboarding as you know, the map and all those things. Um, the fact that I had became a GAL first, I was a GAL for about six months before okay, they the So that's the guardian at Lightum. Okay. And they are the children, they typically are the children's advocates. So they are the ones that create the relationship with the children. Once the child is take, um, taken into care, they are assigned a guardian at litem that's uh that works along with the legal team that makes sure that the child's voice is heard from the child's perspective. Um, up until about I think age 12 or 13, where they try to advocate for the child to come speak for themselves. But the GAL will go to the school, to all the parents homes to the family's homes, anybody that's connected to that child in any way, the doctor, and really get a picture of what this child is experiencing. And then they would come to court and represent, and we have to do reports and everything, and represent what's the best interest from the, for the child from what we saw. So if we saw that the auntie that's been there for them forever is like the best placement because they seem to calm more around the auntie, we have to say that's what we observe. So we see the children several times a month and we document these things that we experience. We go to their school, talk to their teachers about any shift in behavior. You know, we just really get involved in everything, almost like a case manager would, but with a little twist to it because we get to know the kid. We spend a lot of time with the child. Um, so I was doing that before we became a parents, uh, a foster parents. So when I went into that, I didn't really think about the LGBT stuff for the GAL, but when we went into adoption, uh, and for secure mindset, that's when it started to peak his head because one, we were in the South, two, everybody else was buzzing about it. We never experienced anything with our children or anything, but it was just something that we needed to, you know, go toe to toe with in our family unit just to make sure we're not being naive to this possibly being a barrier. But that would have been the only challenge, the internal struggle with you know, whether we're going to face something, especially when we got children that were not of our race and um, we saw a difference in that. I will not lie. We did see a difference in the interactions and who was involved because um, we've had children of Caucasian background, Mexican and African-American. At one point, we almost had a child of another uh, culture, but that didn't pan out. They were able to go back home before it happened. But the the changes between that, those were the biggest challenge that we faced. Um, then the other thing was the lack of training from the, the staff. So we had an excellent family. Um, so you get social workers, one that represents your family, so to speak, and one that as the foster parent, and then you have a social worker that's for the family that's in care. So our social worker was excellent. Like he got us, he understood us. So he was a really good advocate for, you know, when a child came up for care that we would have proper home and things like that. He also was there to answer a lot of questions. So that helped. But when he had to take time off or before we got him, the social workers didn't really come to do their job. They would they wouldn't ask us questions. They didn't come to make sure we didn't, we have resources we needed. We didn't understand what we were getting into. They would advise us. There's something called a life book that the child gets. 
that you're supposed to build so that when a child, if they don't go back home or if they do, they have like a story of how they got into care. And we had a social worker on board at one point that said, well, just tell them that, you know, the, the mom was on drugs. She was smoking marijuana all the time and she didn't, oh, she Lord. was lazy and she didn't want to get a job. And I'm like, what? We can't tell that child that. Are you kidding me? Like, I thought he was joking. Right. He was so serious about, you know, tell them the truth just like it is. And I'm like, yeah, but no, <laughs> absolutely not. We're not going to frame it like that because that's not a, a full truth. And speaking back to what Aisha said about the healing piece, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's more to it than this mom just used marijuana all the time. So we're trying to understand that so that the, the child doesn't grow up with the shame wrapped around a parent. Because I had a parent that was on drugs. I had both of my parents were using drugs before. So I know what's attached to that when you say it to a child much less live it. They didn't get to see it, but to say it would mean so many things to them. So again, that's being trauma informed and being a little bit more cautious. So we experienced a lot of workers like that, where they just was, you know, what our house was, I guess you could say, um, nicer than most of the houses they've seen. So that's what they would say, like, oh my gosh, your house is beautiful. Like it's, it it's you know, like <laughs> shocked, you know, like that y'all have this house, you know. We got a little bit of that um in the beginning, but then because we both have our masters, there was a certain expectation, I guess, they had. So we we those were some of the underlining things you could see people, you know given us in the in the meetings and stuff, but because we squashed that very early on in our um, onboarding process, they were very meticulous about who they gave us as workers. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Yeah, well, I do have a cousin who is literally going through a lot as an LGBT in a different county. And uh-huh. they are giving them the runaround about, and they'll be flat out and say, we just don't believe that LGBT people should adopt children they can do foster care but they shouldn't adopt that's that's other counties have blatantly said it like that yes yes so that's another thing that we need to let our listeners know you know as we're putting on our advocacy hats and uh awareness hats and amplifying messages um that lgbtq communities families couples single um, parents single parents um, are viable um, people to consider for adoption um, as well as foster care and to start to break down some of the myths and misconceptions and, you know, um, that are that surround this community as it relates to being parents and uh, leaders of healthy households. Yes. Uh, so I, j- I want to, there are lots more questions that I have for you, LaTanya, um, but I want to bring Melody into the conversation. And so my first question for Melody is, can you tell our audience how you came to be raised by your grandparents? Right. So um, thank you again. Um, so it's it, it's a very interesting story. Again, um, I was the child in the, in the story. So a lot of the narrative um, just kind of wasn't explained fully. Um, but understanding just the, the history of my family. So my parents uh, went to college together. They did marry. Um, had me. And between the time of having me uh, and the time that I got into the custody of my grandparents, it's a bit of a blur. Um, But when I say blur, there was not a lot explained. And again, it's it's probably going to speak to that. 
um, in some other areas as we as we continue to talk. Um, but that wasn't explained fully. Um, so the beginning, from the beginning of my life, um, even images, pictures, and things, um, it was always in the hands of my grandparents and my great grandparents. Um, so. In terms of how that came to be, um, I was born in Dallas, Texas, raised there, um, and my mother lived there. Um, so after I was born, my parents divorced um, and went their separate ways. Um, I didn't have a relationship with my father growing up, and uh, my mother and I relationship was limited, um, and she had her own lifestyle. Um, so I, I know uh, we touched on a, a few subjects here. Uh, Aisha talked about it as well as Atanya, the impact um, of that era. I too was part of the Reaganomics, um, the impact of the Black community uh, in Dallas um, affected my family directly. So um, that was a byproduct of me ending up with my grandparents. But again, um, as my memory, um, I was always, always there. Um, but there was always a clear distinction. You know, I think that um, when, it, when it, we talk about family, again, this kinship, I, this is the first time I'm hearing this um, uh, phrase. Um, it, it again, it was a very fluid experience. Um, so um, understanding that from a parent versus grandparent, I knew they were my grandparents, but um, because of my experience, um, I was introduced to uh, the roles that were assumed by the people in my family, more so the titles. Um, and I think that I've carried that, um, you know, for my entire life. So, yes. Can I Thank share something? So Yes. This is just this is just this is just information wise. My understanding of kinship foster care is that what we're talking about? Because sometimes with kinship foster care, because it sounds like Melody, you kind of were um, taking your grandparents took you on into their right. Home. But right. Kinship, I don't think the foster piece is the, yeah. right. Right. So I just I just wanted to explain it because I know what kinship foster care usually means that the, the state system is actually involved and that family member is actually getting funding to kind of care for the child. Um, so I just I just want to kind of make that distinction. But I do think that informally in our community, we often do our own kinship foster care in terms of taking taking in family members. Right, right. So right. Share that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I would love to be educated on the actual terms as well. Again, this is my first time even even being familiar. The question was framed: the kinship, the elements of kinship care. Um, yes. And so, in terms of kinship care versus kinship foster care, I guess that would be. So let me jump in here real same. quick. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to talk over you. Um. So one of the things that I want to share, just in to kind of encapsulate this this uh, aspect of our discussion is that um, on average, Black Americans are informally, adop informally adopted at higher rates compared to other racial groups. Black American grandparents specifically are more likely to be primary caregivers of their grandchildren than the general population. And I think that this quote is going to hit home with uh, many of us on this call and probably the audience in general, but Nefertiti Austin, who is the author and memorist of the critically acclaimed Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America's states, I think that we attach less value on who specifically is the mother as opposed to the child belonging to the community, and that it's the community's responsibility to take care of those children in it, Austin said. 
And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you gave birth or I gave birth, or if that's your cousin or my cousin, we are responsible for who is in front of us. Although African-American children were excluded from the public child welfare system until the mid 20th century, informal networks of caring for children have always existed in the African-American community. Likewise, kinship care is very common in the African-American community. In kinship arrangements, a relative may take over the day-to-day -day care for a child temporarily. Today, an estimated 2 million African-American children are raised by grandparents, aunts or uncles, brothers and sisters, cousins and others who are not formal relatives. And when I say relatives, I put that in air quotes because this terminology and the way that it's described in the Black community, all those people are relatives. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> um, very true. And, and, right, in the larger white community or Eurocentric Western, maybe not. Um, but to continue, kinship networks for some African-Americans may extend beyond traditional bloodlines and may include those not directly related to the family. So in this case of conversation, especially as it relates to Melody, uh, we're not talking about the formal kinship foster care aspect. We're talking about what we as African-Americans have embraced about what to do with our children when the direct parents are not able to take care of them. And so whether that's through a formal adoption or not, usually in the case it's not, that's still a part of this conversation. And what I've seen in the research is that um, when we talk about African-Americans adoption and foster care, kinship care comes up more than not. Um, I think that that is also especially the case um, as it relates to this 21st century and having gone through 2020 with the pandemic where grandparents in particular were required, were, um, they, I won't say required. <laughs> um, I live in a multi-generational home and my mother is not required to do anything. Um, <laughs> but they were leaned on, right? So grandparents stepped up, they offered, um, they accepted more responsibility for caring for the children so that the working um, adults um, in the household could continue to bring in money, right? So that kinship care arrangement, um, whether formal or informal, has been very much a part of our um, our, our culture, our history. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from in regard to Melody sharing with us her experience. So Melody, can you share with our audience what it means for you to be raised by your grandparents and not your biological parents? Right. So um, again, earlier, I think I'd, I'd heard one of the other um, guests speak on um, just how sometimes you you have a, a reference that you, you live with. And then when you get out into the world, it's, it's a different acknowledgement. So I say that to say, you know, growing up um, again, because I lived with my grandparents from from birth, um, that was they were my parents. Now, obviously, they were much older. So there was a distinction, but that really didn't really started to come about until I started going to school, you know, and then kids started to ask, oh, well, where's your mom? And, you know, where's your, where's your dad? And, and that became, okay, well, they're, they're right there. You know, that's, that was you know, a very rooted reality for me. Not that they were my biological parents, but they were just my parents. So um, I think that when it came to the dynamic 
Um, it was more a difference when um, I was amongst others and it was a distinction of, okay, well, there must be something wrong. Your parents are not there. Um, <laughs> you know, and so therefore it, it wasn't a difference uh, uh, for me. Um, because again, um, it was from, from birth all the way until I, I graduated high school and, and left off for college. So um, it, it was not a distinction. It was more um, defined um, by others. Um, and so then it, it really then began, um, I, I had to, I was forced in my, in my own opinion to frame um, my perspective of family um, and my understanding of it. Um, it because the, the expectations of, you know, being a young child, just, you know, at an age of eight um, and people saying, well, where's your mom? You know, understand, well, my mom is here. This is my grandmother. She's my mom. But knowing um, the challenges that my family faced because my mother, you know, wasn't present. Um, and Aisha and I talked about this at, at one point, you know, I think that it's important that we each tell our story and my mother's story is her own. Um, as me becoming a parent, um, I've had to learn a lot of forgiveness and understanding the responsibility of stepping up and being a parent. Um, and it, it, it is being, by being a mother, um, like being a parent, just firstly, it's a selfish and selfless act all in one. And when the, the choice was made, again, I did make a choice. When it was made, I felt like it, um, it was a necessary. And this, is, this came through time, right? This is not something that came at a young age, but it was definitely an observation that um, if the people who gave me life were not present, um, and the people who are here loving me are, then this is where I'm supposed to be, right? So uh, the fantasy really, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't become rooted uh, until we got older. But then we all know that a lot of things become uh, a little bit more unclear as we get older. But um, I think that that was really, uh, there was no distinction for me growing up. No distinction. So... <clears throat> I have one more question for you, Melody, before I turn it over to um, back over to Latanya real quick. And that is, how did you feel about your birth parents placing you in the care of your grandparents? You know, especially as you reflect back mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is something where your thoughts and your feelings changed over time. You know, we develop and I love what you said about becoming a parent. Then you start to have more empathy for your parents. Um, I can definitely relate to that. Would you like to share? Absolutely. You know, I think, again, tying back into what I, I just said, you know, um, and the question was, how how did I feel about them placing? Um, yeah, placing you in the care of your grandparents. Yeah. yeah. So that would be a very formal thing, right? Um, again, just uh, looking at it from a transactional thing. I think that, again, to speak to the, the root of, of our communities, the people who took the position of a matriarch or patriarch, um, sometimes things just had to be done. And because I, I don't know all of the details, I, I just know the outcomes of the acts of my parents. My mother and father were married, they went to college together. Um, and the, the, the images of, of what, um, you know, I, I, I can be um, a little sarcastic, but the images of what black excellence was was supposed to be about. You know, my grandparents went to college, worked hard for their kids to go. I went to pursue an education, and that was a very um, um, centered piece 
of what my family stood on in terms of progress, in terms of our position in our community. So um, when it came down to the family um, and understanding that dynamic, it, it, it changed it changed a little bit. You know, um, they were married and neither one of them um, took hand in raising me. So I just went with my mother's family. Um, um, and now I've, I've come to know my father um, in my adult years. Um, but in terms of just the exchange, again, um, so many pieces um, were, were um, left a blur um, in terms of not being told the entire truth. And I think that that has definitely created a backdrop for how I parent. Um, understanding that, you know, in the Black community, um, we, there's a lot of adversity that we had to face and understanding how we defined ourselves in those changing times, being raised by people born in the 20s, you know, having gone through the experiences they had, um, and then being a child born to the, in the 80s, um, experiencing that dynamic shift in our community was really impactful. So when it comes down to, um, you know, the decisions that had to be made, I think that that was just again, through, through time and wisdom, um, I, I just come to understand that just had to be done. Um, and so I think that, that, again, to speak earlier, what Aisha was speaking about, just in terms of um, what our roles are and what our responsibilities are, um, you know, in our family, this, these are the things that are just done. Um, and I, I think that when it comes to my parenting, um, I'm definitely very protective. I am one of those parents who's leader of the system. I am one of those parents who understands the importance of a system but how we play into it in our families, you know, and, and maintaining its integrity in the process, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So my, my grandparents didn't go that route, took me in, and that was just what it was. And so um, I, I definitely feel um, that it was, you know, I, I didn't have any feelings about the parents. I guess over the years, again, with people asking questions, but it just became my reality. You know, these were my parents. And so how did your experience being raised by your grandparents? I mean, we think about the generations, right? And right. what our grandparents grew up with mm -hmm. and then what they impart to us. How did mm -hmm. being raised by your grandparents shape your sense of self and your cultural identity as an African-American woman? Wow. Wow. So again, uh, you know, looking at it from understanding that these are people who, you know, have already raised children. You know, they um, have been through the years of grinding and getting education and all homes and just again the things that we're doing right now um, in our lives. And to have <laughs> experienced being raised by them through what one would describe as traumatic, uh, traumatic event um, would it, it would <laughs> it was very interesting because of the trauma um, around why my mother was not present in my life or my father. And I, and I speak of my mother because again, being a mother, uh, but my father was not either. Um, it, and it was a very interesting dynamic. My family didn't speak of my father. That was a very interesting dynamic. Um, they, they didn't speak negatively, but it didn't speak positively. So it was just kind of this, okay, well, that's it, you know. Um, but understanding, um, you know, what what the relationship was from um, being raised by uh, a couple 
that has already been the process. Um, many, even though I wasn't raised by my mother, we have a lot of similarities, being a musician, being a free spirit, um, understanding how that plays into my life as I've come of age. Um, I can only imagine what it was like for her. And it's that sympathy and empathy um, that I had to come to as a parent. You know, um, the dynamics of, of segregation, of dealing with being a creative. She was a musician. Um, she went to law school. Um, being caught up in that era of change, you know, of uh, uh, when when um, we had a, a voice um, of a different era, um, the movement then. So I, it's so many elements that I know played into the choices that were made. And there's so many things that I, I, I did not know. But understanding that being raised by these people, you know, um, the community was older, right? So I was in a community that had already had black businesses and black doctors and cleaners and, you know, black people still worked at the gas stations and, and things of that nature. So everything was black. Um, and, and, and not to take any away from any other communities, but in terms of understanding the root, it wasn't until, um, you know, I began to get older that people said, well, you know, you, you kind of live in the inner city. And then, but to me, that was excellence. You know, people were working together. Um, my, because my grandparents were older, their peers were older. So I knew women who were in their 80s and 70s principals, you know, still doctors, still practicing. Um, that demonstration of womanhood, um, but despite the number of years, that they, they didn't even translate to me. You know, these women um, were leaders in the churches, in their communities, um, educators. Um, this was everyday living for me. Um, and, and it didn't come down to, um, generationally speaking, the expectation is this is the life that you create for yourself. Um, this is the life that um, you, you rise above the challenges. So again, I think talking about the walk away, um, the being raised by grandparents, I understood um, a lot as a young person. That, and I, and I, I don't think at the time I did, looking back, you know, um, I saw a lot of the pain that they went through um, dealing with my mother. Um, and the challenges that existed then. Um, I think they probably took a different course with me. I, I often said that at times, you know, they did let me express my music side. Um, you know, I played and sang and performed in clubs um, when I was 15 years old. You know, I don't think my grandparents even thought to do that with my mother, right? I think in that era, it was just a different day. So they allowed me to do some things, I think, because um, maybe of some of the choices that they made earlier. Um, but it was still a tight ring, uh, but I think that it definitely was a lot of um, a wisdom in terms of just instilling values as opposed to, um, you know, dwelling on the pain and the loss, you know, just really instilling the, the, the values. And so they kept it going. They kept it going. Um, and, and I definitely feel that I walked away with um, the elements of, of what it takes to make a family. They're no longer with us. Um, my, my grandmother passed away uh, in 97. Um, my grandfather passed away in 2000. Um, so, you know, it's it, it was uh, definitely um, the, the, the years that molded me the most um, were those early years with them. Thank you so much for sharing your phenomenal story. Um, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because as much as we need to know um, about how to care for our children who are, uh, you know, whose parents cannot care for them. We also need to know that with that comes hope, 
right? That um, that our community is equipped um, to still make a positive impact and a molding impact on the lives of those children. And along those lines, I want to go back to Latanya and have her share with us a little bit about um, her organization that she and her wife, Tawana, have started. And tell us a little bit about the motivation behind that, um, what it is that you do with Forever Bonded, and how people can learn more, uh, you know, or have extend this conversation with you all. Thank you, Naisha. First, let me just give honor. And I'm so humbled by uh, Melody's story because there's so many different things that play into how families come together, how families become a unit. Um, and Forever Bonded was birthed out of watching the way in which me and Tawana created family. So I have one biological child because I always joke with people that, and I'm not really joking, but I'm joking, that the pain, I just couldn't do that more than one time. <laughs> That's real. Um, woo, that pain was a real, real thing and I'm not, I just can't do it. So I have one biological child. My wife has three biological children and then we have three adopted children that we first did foster care with. And we have a host of children that we call our children just over the years of rearing our children that came through our household and um, the, the way that we talked about previously. And um what we saw was that the community just is just not educated around how to deal with a family that doesn't fit into the box of a nuclear family. And so the doctors didn't know how to engage us. Um, the school system didn't know how to engage us. Our communities was trying to figure it out, you know, whether it was because we were LGBT, because we were foster parents, because, you know, at one point I was a single parent. It, it just seemed like people have such a hard time. So an example of that was when we would go to the doctor, the forms would not have room for if you are a grandparent. It would say mother and father. It wouldn't say provider or guardian or whatever. And you would have to write this explanation because once you got into the room and asked certain, the doctor asked certain questions, now you have to explain. So for example, my daughter has asthma. Um, and she had uh, that upper uh, respiratory infection that was going around RSA or something like that back a few years ago. And the doctor was asking us all these questions about her familial background. And we're like, did you not look at the paper? <laughs> That's not our biological child. Um, we need you to be educated about this, you know, like so we can stop explaining this in front of this little person that doesn't understand it fully yet. Um, so that was one of the biggest issues. Then in the school, the school, when we got the three children that were Mexican, they weren't informed that the children came to our home. And in their parents' house, they would eat candy and coffee in the morning. And we wouldn't let them do that at our house. We was like, okay, now coffee, we can't give you. And candy, you just you just can't have candy in the morning. I'm sorry, but everything else you could do. You know, we'll get chorizo, chorizo, we'll do everything else, but you can't have that. So they would go to school and say they were hungry and they ended up sending home a care package. 
instead of calling us or anything, they sent wow. home like a, a, a book bag full of tuna fish and crackers and oh, yeah. stuff like this. And we were like, what is this? And it was like, oh, they just give this to the kids. And we was like, nah, that, they don't just give this out. Let's go see what's going on. And it turned out that that's what they were saying, that they were going, they were going hungry. They, they Nobody was feeding them breakfast in the morning. So after sitting with the social workers and identifying that one, they did not know that the children were taken out of the home. Then two, they didn't have a real understanding of how to navigate what to do with them because now there was some behavioral stuff that was starting to arise. Um, they weren't even used to them doing their homework regularly. So they were wondering what was going on like because they saw some changes and then they saw some things that they were concerned about. But the, the agency's purpose was to build one, two, it was two-pronged, oh, well, three, I should say. One is to build community awareness. So we, we educate different um, organizations and companies around um, being culturally sensitive to non-traditional family units. So we'll, whether it's change of forms, if you have, you know, get to know your customer base. And if you have predominantly single families or uh, families that are coming in who have kinship um, care or kinship foster care, that there's room for them to make some statement about that so that you don't just run down your list and not look at the person in front of you. Um, we also offered um, support around trauma-informed care and practice um, education and, and linking them to Duke Family Health so that they can participate in that training. Then the second thing, the second prong was to work with new reunification. So we're going to be adopting the peer support model to become more active in the the court system to help those parents who are really doing a diligent effort to try to get their children re-engaged, I mean, reunified with them, but they don't have the proper resources or understand how to navigate certain systems. So we're working with a couple of different agencies to bring about um, peer support services within the agency over the next um, year to 18 months. And then the last thing we do is educating parents and creating forums where parents can come and learn how to create pride in your blended family. So we have, um, because we have a blended family, um, Naisha would know this because she's on my Facebook page, but our last name is combined. My last name and her last name is Dewberry. And most people thought that was my real last name, but we did that because we wanted to, our children have different last names and we were tired of them having to explain, well, I'm a Williams and I'm a Robertson and I'm a Du Bois and I'm a, you know, we didn't want them to have to stress about that. So we started calling ourselves the Dewberry family and everybody just galvanized with that. Like we had more families just becoming that family that wasn't the traditional family to normalize the fact that there is not just one family type, one family structure. There's multiple structures and awesome helping people understand that. So right now, we only started it in 2020. We have been providing funding, small bits of funding to families who are in like um, recovery. So we've helped some women um, in transition in uh, recovery homes with, you know, buying stuff for children that they have and their family so they can be more present in their children's life and feel confident doing little coaching sessions with them. Um, we have a friend that does a parent enrichment program. She's a parent coach. We're going to collaborate with her as well. 
Um, but the whole goal is just to create some normalcy around the fact that it's not only one type of family unit out here. And we need to engage in all of that. Single families, father-led families, because you would think that fathers are not single parents too sometimes. Right. Normalizing the fact that when a person walks into a place where their children are being prioritized, whether it's school or a doctor's office, that that parent may not look like or be that home life might not be like you think. And you need to address it from that lens so that we can create less triggers for our children, if possible, um, without them having to explain their whole life just because it looks different from what our children are used to seeing in the nuclear family. And um, the way that people can get in contact with us right now is through Facebook. Um, and we're going to be doing some events this year, hopefully have a retreat before the year is out for some families to come and rep their family. We have T-shirts that say that. So um, we do different campaigns, T-shirt campaigns to run um, raise funds for those events. Um, but right now, if you go to Facebook and go to um, at Forever Bonded Family, you'll be able to go to our page. Um, we plan to be very active starting this year because of so many um, laws and acts that's being moved for children, especially in foster care. And we want to just be in the fold as much as possible. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with our um, listeners. And that is Forever Bonded Family. You can find them on Facebook. I'm sure that some of their outlets will be expanding soon, but we want to get more people to follow them, more people to support them, more people to get engaged with them because, you know, this podcast is not just about, you know, talking about issues. It's also about acting and finding ways for us to get more involved, to be more supportive, to encourage each other to um, be healthy and to foster well-being um, in our communities um, and to recognize that, like Melody said, regardless of the you know adversities that we face, that we are able to rise above them. So thank you so much, Latanya, for for sharing about Forever Bonded um, and making sure that, you know, we know more about where you're coming from, not just as a parent, um, but as a woman, um, as a black woman, as a, as a lesbian woman um, and, and as a mother. Yeah. So I just really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask, with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests this week, Aisha Gray-Henry, Latanya Dewberry, and Melody Fuller. Tune in next week for the conclusion of our discussion on foster care, adoption, and kinship care in the African-American community. 